goes back to the church. I can't do it by myself. I need God and I need other people who are also trying to do the same thing. You yeah. need that community around you. You need your team. Yes. You can say, I hear you. I get that you're angry. Let's go for a walk. <laughs> yeah. Right. And let's and let's pray and let's read scripture and let's but we can't ignore the anger. We can't ignore the, the desire for revenge. We can't pretend it doesn't exist. Sure. We have to name it in order to be healed from it. Right. Right, right. Hi, I'm Shannon Huffman Polson, and I want to welcome you to Facing the Wind, season two of the Grit Factor podcast. We are going to have a great time this season with episodes bringing you experts from around the world in leadership, grit, resilience, purpose, and storytelling. I've listened to you over this last year, your comments, your responses, your conversations, your questions, and this really is a season that has been designed with you in mind. This really is a season that's been designed to answer those questions that you need to know in order to fulfill that mission that I know we have in common, that mission of the Grit Institute, which is building courageous leaders for a better world. We're doing that through our courses online at thegritinstitute.com, through our books, and of course, through this podcast. And if you have a question you'd like to have included, please head over to thegritinstitute.com forward slash podcasts and leave your voicemail. Let's take off. I'm so grateful for this conversation today with Bishop Gretchen Reber, a truly extraordinary person who happens to be our bishop in the Episcopal Diocese of Spokane. The Episcopal Diocese of Spokane is a diocese with a massive and politically polarized territory, including 38 different congregations. Bishop Reberg may also be the bishop with the most unusual background. With her PhD in chemistry, she taught organic chemistry at Bucknell University and served her community as an EMT and firefighter for many years. While at seminary, Gretchen was on the ground for 9-11 and shares her story from that terrible day and its direct impact on her in the years to follow. I'm grateful for the opportunity to know and learn from Bishop Reberg over several years. We're gonna to talk today about leadership of a large and diverse community, what to do about burnout in organizations, and what grit means to her after September 11th. Bishop Reberg is candid, open and honest, and often funny. She is passionate about proclaiming the inclusive love of God and equipping the people of God for transformation and growth. Christian formation for all ages is of vital importance to Gretchen, and she stresses the need for both rigorous engagement and the need for openness and humility in learning. Well, Bishop Gretchen, thank you for being with us on The Grip Factor. It is my pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you. It's, a, it's an honor to have you always and, and always Thanks. a joy to have any opportunity to connect. So you have an absolutely incredible background and, uh, and listeners will have heard that on the intro to the podcast. But I'd love to hear from you a little bit about where you got started, because it's not uh, not necessarily your standard straight path. You probably should tell me how long I have for how I got started. <laughs> That's fair. Let me try to do a, a, a real brief nutshell introduction. So, so I grew up the daughter of Eastern Montana farmers yes, who had left Eastern Montana, moved to Pullman. Dad got a PhD in ag economics. And so we had a small farm, as, as I would say today, big enough you had to work every day, too small to make a living at it, right? Fair and enough. Dad also taught ag economics at WSU. So oh, I grew up the daughter of a, a professor and farmer at the same time, right? Who was very, very active in the church, right? which meant everyone knew me. 
Yeah. Nor that I went, could I not get in trouble if you know, <laughs> depending on what I was doing? Um, but what it really, they also taught us because of the way they did the family chores and the farm chores is that you could do anything. It didn't matter whether you were a boy or a girl. They just split the chores evenly and um, nothing was beyond your dreaming. Yes. And my mom and dad were really, really good. They, they treated me. I'm going to be an astronaut. I'm going to be a heart surgeon. I'm going to be a nun with the same sort of, that's fine. That's good. Whatever yep. you want, you know, <laughs> well, have you thought about, but they never dismissed anything I said. Right. And when I was a senior in high school, I just wanted to see the world. So I looked at colleges that were back East. Okay. Cause all I wanted to do was see someplace different. Yep. And so August of 1982, I got on a Greyhound bus and rode the bus across country to go to college, dropped off at a school I had literally never been to and experienced a whole different culture because that's what I wanted to do. I just wanted to see different places, learn new things and see the world. And I did the same thing for graduate school, went to a different part of the country, yeah. but I had a postdoc in Europe because it was always about exploring and discovering new things and really discovering who I am in the sure. midst of all of that. And really coming to grips with what was my, you know, Eastern Washington background when you're in Suwannee, Tennessee, with people who are incredibly rich. Yes. And it's a very different culture. Right. Right. And just that was where I first really, for myself, became aware of um, really blatant racism in a way that Uh I'd been blind to, even though it had happened here. I've been blind to. Right. So it was a time of really exploration, growing up, discovering who I am. Um, I loved working hard right. and chemistry was the hardest major acknowledged hardest major. Right. And <laughs> so I majored in chemistry. <laughs> I plan on majoring in history, but you know, but I loved chemistry. <laughs> uh, I loved teaching. I discovered that as a TA. Okay. Um, I had thought about going into ministry, but they said, Oh, get, go get life experience. Ah, so I did. Right. Sounds wise. Fell in love with teaching. Um, at the same time, I became an emergency medical technician and a firefighter because one needs to do something that's just hard physical labor if what you're doing is always thinking with your head. Well, especially right? if you're coming from, from Montana, right? And you're used right. to that. Yeah. You need to, and there's something really great about working with a team, being in danger, relying on your, on your teammates, Absolutely. Um, knowing the job is well done. Right. You, you don't really get that when you're just teaching. And then meanwhile, I had this call from God to, to serve the church. And so eventually I went to seminary, um, which is how I experienced uh, the trauma of 9-11. Eventually got back east. Uh, I served in the east, got back west, eventually became bishop. That's that's a nutshell. So, so when you, I didn't realize this actually. So you became a firefighter and then you were in seminary and then then that's when 9-11 happened. Right. So I was, I became a firefighter in 82, did that at the same time that I was okay. doing everything else. Um, and so I was, Yeah. So, so how, um, I mean, that, that, that's extraordinary. And I have to say, going from Alaska to North Carolina for college myself, yeah. I very much relate to what you're describing. I, I imagine we, we would have a lot to talk about there, which is um, maybe the biggest culture shock of my life, for sure, going yeah. from, yes, the far northwest to the far southeast and, and all that goes with it. And um, right. yeah, the racism was, was, uh, was devastating to experience and immediately evident, right? 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and then st to start to realize in your own self where, where those things lie, which is another right. indemnification <laughs> that comes right. later with a little bit more maturity. But so, so you became a, a firefighter. You're going through graduate school. No, no. Before you went to seminary, I think you were, you were teaching uh, college, right? Is that right? Yeah. So I taught organic chemistry at Bucknell University, which is in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. Yes. And I was a, um, eventually a lieutenant in the town uh, fire department as well. Okay. Okay. Right. Because biochemistry is really easy too, I think. <laughs> Just... it's, it was organic chemistry. Oh, organic <laughs> chemistry. Well, actually, that's the class. Harder than biochemistry. Harder than biochemistry. I'm sorry. Yes, that's right. I was an English major, so you have to forgive me. <laughs> I just did that because I loved it, not because it was hard, although I found it both. <laughs> so so then, um, and then where did you go to seminary? And, and how did that, actually, let's start with, with this. How, how did that when you say you had the call from God, right? You you knew and you had thought about ministry earlier, uh, but how did that come about? How did you recognize that? How did you uh, how did you interrogate that? If that's an appropriate way to to ask that question, and then and then how did you decide to make that that change? Because that's pretty significant. So I think I, I've had a call from the time I was young. This nagging sense that my life was to be committed to God and the work of God. Yes. Um, but exactly how that is. I wrestled with, I didn't quite know, couldn't articulate very well when I was younger, I think. I loved being part of the church. Yes. Always was, even when it was difficult, I always was part of the church. I loved the fact that I felt connected to God, to people, to creation through the church. Yes. Right. Um, I, I, I joke that I'm religious, not spiritual, because <laughs> if I were spiritual and not religious, God would look like me. Uh, right. It's really easy to find and, and have deep, profound moments with God on the Oregon coast or in the mountains. Sure. But I find it for my own self. I'm called to see God in the face of the person who just pissed me off. You can't do that unless you're with other people. Yes. Right. And so yeah. for me, I really believe I'm called to the church where as imperfective, we, we don't do it perfectly at all. Sure. Right. And yet that's what we're trying to do. Yes. Right. So it's not just about my relationship with God. It's about my relationship with all of God's creation. That's right. beautiful. So, so I had this sense when I became a organic chemistry professor that this is what I was supposed to do. I, I was really, really good at it. Sure. I won an award for it. I loved it. But there was this nagging, stupid voice saying, this is not what you were meant to do. Right. And I fought it. Because yep. I loved what I did. Yep. And um, I wondered whether oh, it's just a backup plan. If I don't get tenure, well, maybe I should be a priest. So I sure. thought, I'm going to wait. I'm going to get tenure. And if I don't get tenure. <laughs> you know, right. But if I do get tenure and the voice doesn't go away, then I need to pay attention. Right. Well, I got tenure. Wow. And that stupid voice wouldn't go away. We sometimes call the call from God the hound of hell. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the hound of heaven, I'm not sure, depending on the day, right, that pursues you. Yeah. And, and in some ways, a lot of us will talk about it as woos you. I mean, it's, it sounds odd, but almost like a lover, yeah. right, inviting you in, drawing you closer. Sure. Which is because if you really knew what you're getting in for, you might not do it. <laughs> Isn't that the case of anything worthwhile? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so I finally said, I either need to stop praying or I need to answer this call. And so then what happens when you say, okay, I believe I'm being called 
to priesthood in the Episcopal Church. There's a whole, it's a whole process. We call it the process, capital T, capital P, right? For congregational discernment, diocesan discernment, psych evals, psychiatric examinations, medical examinations, all the things to say, do you really want to do this? Um, because like, I mean, just like teachers, priests can cause a lot of harm. Yeah. And so we really try to say, we want people who are emotionally responsible and emotionally mature. We want people who have um, emotional intelligence. Yes. You know, and then you go to seminary, which, you know, I love school. So that's great. Right. <laughs> Perfect fit. Perfect fit. So I went to the general theological seminary, which is in New York city, which is how I got in New York. Yes. Um, and then I connected with station three, which is the Chelsea station. So engine three, truck 12 in terms of the New York fire department. Wow. So, so you're yeah. at seminary and you're serving as. No, I wasn't serving. I just, because they didn't, they don't take volunteers and do uh-huh. but yeah. I would go and talk with the guys and be with them at times. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Was that, was that like chaplain kind of works a, a little bit or. Or just you know, it wasn't formal chaplain. Sure. It was after I left seminary that they established a more formal chaplaincy role okay. for seminarians. I'd like to think I had some role in that, but um, no, but it wasn't. So Yeah. Well, well tell us uh, about that day uh, and that morning on 9-11. Sure. So interestingly enough, I was supposed to be at Trinity Wall Street that day. Hmm. And instead of being at Trinity Wall Street, uh, to listen to the Archbishop of Canterbury because he was coming to the seminary the very next day. Oh, um, wow. I, w- I was also asked to be the first officiant for opening morning prayer at the new start of the term for seminary. And I thought, oh, no, I'm going to do that because um, that, that was an honor. You know? yeah. So I led morning prayer, um, went to class and on break heard, oh, a plane's crashed in the World Trade Center. And all of us thought the exact same thing a small little private plane, right? Right. That's what everyone thought. Sure. And then um, on another break, we heard, oh, no, this isn't the case. Uh, a second plane had gone in and went back and, and told that to the church history class it was in. I remember that vividly. It was church history. Um, and, we, and we just stopped class and, and called everybody to chapel for prayer. Um, my friend Dion and Neil who was Air Force Academy grad. Um, she and I climbed the chapel tower to, to see what we could see and then said, okay, um, let's, and at that point we, and, and so um, saw the smoke from the first tower that had come down, um, went and said with others, let's go give blood. So we went to St. Vincent's, which is the closest hospital. And it turns out, streams of people had gone to St. Vincent's to give blood. They were lining people up by blood type, blocks long. Wow. And a nurse was coming down the line and, and I said, so you've got plenty of people giving blood. Do you need any other help? And she said, what are your qualifications? And I said, I'm an EMT firefighter and hazmat. And she said, we need a hazmat officer. So on September 11th, I was the hazmat officer for the emergency room at St. Vincent's Hospital. And because the people that normally would do that had gone down to the site. Um, and so we set up a decontamination center outside the ER before you actually entered the gates, um, did decontamination outside, moved them inside to further emergency room work. We were the only hospital to receive any, um, anybody. 
the hospitals were all on alert, but of course, not a lot came. Right. 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 Um, and and part of my job was to, as part of that decon, just ask them, are you with anybody? You know, if it was, does your officer know where you are? If they were an officer, do you know where your crew is? Um, do you have, you know, trying to, Dealing with really traumatized people, yeah. right? Hearing some pretty traumatic. I mean, I'll never forget the the one lieutenant who was um, tears coming down, saying, "I've lost my entire crew." Um, I didn't have the time at that point to ask, you know, how did you find yourself here, right? And I, and I never knew. I still don't know to this day when he said, "I lost." Is it I don't know where they are, right? Where I lost them. Um, and, and as a lieutenant, I mean, that's that's our job, bring our people back alive. Right. Right. I'll, I'll never forget when I became an officer in the fire department. And my chief said, that's your main job now, bring your people back alive. You know, so it's, it was really difficult dealing, doing that. Um, I did have one person tell me I was doing an inadequate job with decon because we were trying to do it relatively fast. And I was like, oh, yes, geez. sir, I recognize that we're not doing this to the full extent. Is that when you want to say, would you like to come help? Right. <laughs> That's right. Oh, and, and wow. Um, so really, it's so worked all day with those who are coming in to be to be checked out. And um, that was the only day I was at St. Vincent's. After that, I worked down at the site for a couple of days. Right. Um, and then realized at that point, they really didn't need... Um, my type of help anymore. It was several days in, it was really, it's recovery and construction workers. Sure, so, sure. Yeah. sure. But, but you suffered, I think, uh, physical injury from this as a result of, of all that was happening, I think. Is that right? I did, I did. I, I have, as the doctors say, uh, um, an intense, um, but sh- short but intense exposure. Yes. Um, and so I, my lungs are badly damaged. Yeah, yeah. And I know for someone that loves to do things outside and work with your body, that's a hard thing. Yeah, the question always is, you know, who are you when you're not who you used to be? Yes. And I'm not who I used to be in right. terms of my physical health and physical abilities. Sure. But I'm also not who I used to be in terms of sort of the, what, what 9-11 forced me to grapple with is, yeah. what do I really believe about the call to follow the one who said, put down your sword? Yes. What do I really believe about the one who said, love your enemy? Yes. Right. Because I found within me such anger. Right. That I had to really wrestle with. Am I am I really called to be a priest? Right. Right. Yes. I mean, all of my classmates, they went to serve as chaplains. I went right down to serve as a firefighter, EMT. Right. What was my real call? Right. Right. And my th- theology professor helped me wrestle with that and helped me realize, no, part of that's because I had special training that they didn't have. And that's what was needed at that point. Right. But then yeah. how do I take that into my call now? Um, and some of what I think I do is I, I acknowledge, yes, I felt anger. Yeah. I desired revenge. And, and if I'm going to follow Jesus, right. how do I deal with that? It's right. not by acting on it. Right. Right. So how do you, how do you deal with that? Because I think that's a great theological question and a great life question for, for most of us, actually. So part of what I've reflected on is, what 9-11 did to me personally in terms of experiencing the trauma of the deaths that happened, the destruction that happened, my own health 
Yes. But in reality, that is virtually, I don't say nothing, but the level of trauma we experienced in terms of the destruction and the people killed and the people impacted is nothing to what Syria is going through or the Ukraine's going through or, you know, a lot of the places that have had deep wars, deep insurrections. Right. I don't want to wish that on anyone. Yes. Right. And so if, if knowing what happened to me, I don't want another person hurt because we are bombing them. Right. Because we are destroying their livelihoods because we are, killing their people. I don't want that for them because I don't want it for me. Yes. And so how do I see the other, even if they're the ones that, that had such anger towards us that they acted on it. How do I say, I will not, I will break the cycle. I will do what I can to break this cycle. I will not respond in kind. Yes. Even when I want to. Yes. Right. And the only way I can do that, it goes back to the church. I can't do it by myself. I need God and I need other people who are also trying to do the same thing. You yeah. need that community around you. You need your team. Yes. You can say, I hear you. I get that you're angry. Let's go for a walk. <laughs> right. Well, and let's and let's pray and let's read scripture and let's but we can't ignore the anger. We can't ignore the the desire for revenge. We can't pretend it doesn't exist. Sure. We have to name it in order to be healed from it. Right. Right, right. right. Read your yeah. psalms, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> psalms. <laughs> that'll, that'll take you down some places where you're like, well, at least I wasn't there. That's good news. Right. <laughs> at least that's right. <laughs> wow. Uh, so, yeah, I think that is, um, I mean, I, and I am thinking in this framework that we talk about in the grip factor a lot, which is uh, this the commit phase of, of owning your story and, and connecting to core purpose. And, uh, core purpose, meaning a heart purpose, meaning something deeper than what is specific to the moment or specific to the job at hand. Right. Um, and if you were to frame that experience uh, in terms of story and purpose, well, it seems to me your story, I mean, you you know, it traces back to being on a farm in Montana, right? With a both academic and physically demanding uh, family. <laughs> so uh, in, in the best ways. Um, and that sounds to me like that is something that you've connected to as a source of strength. Is that a fair assessment? Or or how do you think about using that story as something that has helped you move forward in, in your decisions and in the way that you've you've dealt with challenge? Yeah, I think one of the things, I mean, going back to childhood, we were taught to work really hard and to rely on each other to do so. Yes. Right. And I think that's a critical thing to, to recognize you don't have to do this by yourself. Yes. Right. There was, there was always the work hard. Yes. But there was never the, you have to do it by yourself. Yes. And I think that's an important aspect of life. Definitely. And, and also that story of once you've decided for me, once I decided to follow Jesus as, as an, as an actual decision versus just the church I grew up in, the thing that I always have done. Right. Once I said, no, this is actually what I want. I want what, what Jesus I believe offers, which is, and for me, a life that is a life of love and forgiveness and compassion, and mercy and kindness, where, where people actually take care of one another at yes. its core. Right? right. If I want that, I have to live it. Yes. And it's not going to be easy. Peace is possible. Right. Well, then you have to work for it. Right. 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 And I feel like that—that that is a 
something that you see even in uh, in the conversations when people say, well, why do I need God if I can just do good? I can just do good, but I don't need God for that. I can do good things. It sounds to me like you're answering that in part. I mean, because I, I do, you do look at that and you're saying, well, is that about you or is that about <laughs> like you feeling good? In which case that's sort of missing, missing the mark a little bit, although you might get that tangentially otherwise. But um, how do you respond to those sorts of comments? People are saying I can do good without God. It's like, great. Are you? Sure. I mean, because I mean, I think the really committed community atheist holds up a mirror against all of those who say we believe in God and says, "Okay, are you doing it? Yeah. Right. Right. And so I have no problem with somebody who says they don't believe in God, who says they don't follow Jesus. If they're if they're living a life that in my mind is following Jesus, I don't care whether they believe they say they believe or not. Yeah. Right. Um, Too many people equate intellectual assent, by the way, with belief. Yes. Right. I don't. And so people can believe in God and not actually put their trust in and put their whole life towards because they just, oh, yeah, there's intellectual assent. Sure. Or other people work and live in a way that shows me they believe whether they think they do or not. Right. And I I don't want to diminish those who say, no, I truly don't. I don't want to say, oh, yeah, you really do. But, but no, you can be a good person. You can be a person of community and good faith, if you will. I happen to believe, however, this is my belief, sure. that God created us right. and God created us for a relationship with God. And whether they know it or not, they're having one. Sure. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, that's that's fair enough. That's why I'm, I'm just reading actually a little bit about the end of um, Maslow's life and his philosophy. And he was completely enchanted with the idea of divinity and mysticism. And, and but he but he was committed an atheist. Right. But he was he could not let it go. And ultimately, this top of a pyramid, which he actually did not create. Right. Some consultant created it and everyone attributes it to him uh, of 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 uh, of self-actualization was not the top. It was self-transcendence because it was the getting out of yourself, which is the hard thing, I think, for a lot of us. But when you get out of yourself, I think sometimes you realize, well, maybe that's with God. <laughs> maybe that's what that's all about. <laughs> but, it, but it can take a while to get there, right? This holiday season, make sure you have your copies of The Grit Factor, Courage, Resilience, and Leadership in the most male-dominated organization in the world. You can pick them up anywhere books are sold. It's the perfect gift for colleagues, for clients, and for anyone you care about. Yeah, yeah. So so Mother Teresa has a great line about a drop of water outside an ocean Mm. is a drop of water outside the ocean. Which at first you go, what? But what, what you realize she's really saying is the drop of water is meant to be in the ocean. And the ocean is diminished if it's not in it, just as that drop is diminished if it's not part of it. Right. Right. And so for us, we we have, especially in the West, we think we're individuals. Yes. We don't recognize we're actually connected. Right. Right. And so seeing it's that whole destruction of community. Yes. How do we see that actually what I do matters? And it matters to the community at large. And, and so, and the community of large matters to me. I can't separate myself from that. Right. And I, I really believe that's what religion at our, its best tries to teach us. I'm not saying it does it well, right? Sure. But, but religion, religion at their best, that's part of what they're trying to say. Right. And it almost, it feels like if you go back to looking 
at the history of the Enlightenment, which obviously did many exceptionally important things, one of the, 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 the bad things seems to be that we suddenly decided that everything was intellectual and there was nothing else. And, and it goes against all of human history, right? And all of human experience and actually lived human experience in many of our cases as well. So it's, it's such an interesting thing that, that, that it seems that there's this desire to separate and to compartmentalize when, when it's, you, you really can't at the end of the day, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. And that, I mean, it's something that comes up in, in all of the interviews for the Grip Factor, every general officer, and I sort of think of you in that, uh, you're in the general officer realm, but mm -hmm. in the Episcopal Church, uh, is that, that all of them, although they held these positions that were very solitary and at the kind of the yeah. top of your, the, the head of the Spokane Diocese, that none of them did it alone. And they would all talk to that piece. And, uh, and so how, as you have gone through your journey, and this has been, whether it's academia or whether it's in, in the firefighters, it's it's a bit more evident. It's a bit more like what we talk about in the military. Um, but now in your religious life, how does how do you think about that team? And, and, and have you consciously structured it or is it just part of the environment? Yeah, I, that's a great question. So one of the most common complaints among clergy is isolation and loneliness. Yes. And so one of the things that I did early on is I said in my life, I did not want to be that person who right. feels isolated and lonely. And the reason why they do, by the way, is if you have you have a congregation, usually with one cleric. Sure. And that cleric has a different role from the people in the pews. Yes. And so while you're in a community, you know, they're not doing the same thing. You're not called to be the same thing. Yes. And so there can be isolation with not nobody else who's my colleague right and so you have to work harder yeah. to find that colleague because you're you're often the only person doing that task right and if unless you break down the barriers of denominationalism you're sure. often the only church in that town right in that denomination right and so you you have to find ways to be together yes and so we definitely we try to create structures to help you do that so in the church, we, we have clericus gatherings where the clergy come together once a month. We have, we try to say, to find a clericus gathering in your local town, sure. ecumenically to do Bible study together, have accountability groups together, yes. do what you need so you don't feel isolated and lonely. Sure. And then in the, the diocesan level, we have times when we come together as a clericus as a whole, all the clergy of the diocese for retreat, for conference, for right. convention, for meetings, things like that. And, and to just say, yes, you might be the only one in your town with your particular role, but you're not the only one trying to follow Jesus. Right, right. <laughs> so how do we yes. do this? Right. You're not right. the only one facing these issues. You're not the only one doing, you're never the only one. And it's kind of, it's, I think when I realized it really is hubris sure. to say nobody understands. Sure. Right. Then then you get out of yourself. You, you can laugh at yourself and say, OK, where do I turn for the help that I need? Right. And how do I create those structures? Right. Because they do exist. They're just not necessarily as obvious in the church as they would be in the military or in the fire department. Right. Right. One of the big conversations in the business world right now is around mentorship and the importance yep. of mentorship, not just in new roles, but actually as you continue to to progress through your role. And, and this goes a bit to the isolation in a sense. It's not as as collegial, I think, as a as a as a colleague would be. Um, but how does the church think about that relative to mentorship of either new priests or, or established priests? 
Yeah. So that's, that's another place where we are really trying to work really hard on that. So in our diocese, we require all new clergy within their first five years of ordained life have a mentor. Uh-huh. And then any priest that comes into a new call, regardless of how long they've been ordained, is in a year-long program with other people in new calls. Yes. To say, okay, you might have been ordained 20 years, you might have been ordained two, but if you're in a new call, you're together because right. you're facing some of the similar things. So they can also help mentor each other okay. and work together. Yeah. Um, and then the new new clergy are cl- clearly given a mentor. Yes. And then when I became a bishop, I was given a three-year mentor Oh, okay. Uh, so to help me as well. Sure. So we're trying, we try to be very intentional. And again, the challenge is somebody can resist it. Sure. Somebody can not actually do it. Right. You know, you only, it's only as effective as the people who are participating want it to be. Yes. That's always the case. Right? Those who take full advantage of it. It's a really important and valuable thing. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. The other interesting place, and I feel like this will have direct relevance to some of what you've just brought up relative to this isolation and, and this feeling of being alone and the only one, um, but relative to the, the concepts of grit and resilience, and, and this really really came to the front in COVID because there was this, uh, I mean, there's tremendous pressures, right? But specifically, I think, on, on clergy uh, because of the this incredible needs and yet isolation of, of everybody else as well. But but really everybody in the world has has had to find some reserve of grit and resilience. Um, and there's kind of two pieces to this. One of them is that need to, to be able to be resilient, to be able to push through the hard times, to be able to draw on the correct sources of strength for those hard times. And the other piece of that is for those who do a little too much of that, um, I'm guessing that you may fit in that category, and I know I do too, uh, realizing that's not a sustainable solution and that there is actually a counterbalance required. Like grit is not a sustainable operating mode, right? At the end of the day, it's critical. And yet you have to take care of yourself and take care of your people and your family and 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 be able to rest in order to be able to to go back and access that grit. Where do you, how do you see the, that, that balance or that lack of balance playing out in, in your profession? So, so I think this is where being part of the church is really useful. Yes. Okay. Because we've actually been commanded to take a Sabbath. Mm. Right? Now people yes. aren't necessarily very good at it. Sure. Right. But it, we are commanded for, and for two reasons. One is because God, God rested in God's self as yes. part of an act of creation. That yes. rest is actually a creative act. Yes. And that's an important thing for us to remember. And yes. the other one is as a mark of freedom from slavery. Uh-huh. And what I often say to somebody is, if you can't put things down and rest, who or what are you a slave to? Mm. A lot of times people resent that question. Yeah, but that's a good question. <laughs> but it's an important one. And also, I think if you're in a field that requires time to really think, right. you have to rest. It's yeah. part of that creative act. And and so I think we. I'm in a profession that acknowledges the importance of sabbath yes even if we're not very good at keeping it we're no we're supposed to be yes and so taking the time saying i'm doing sabbath rest really engaging in times of of rest of not work and for me what i try to say is i'm not going to make anybody else work either he would say eight hours of rest eight hours of work eight hours of prayer prayer now that's for a monk, right? But sure. part of that that sense of yes, how do we understand there's a rhythm and balance to life that's every day, every week, 
And, and what I say to clergy is, look, not every week can you really, you know, have eight hours of rest and eight hours of play and eight hours of work, but you need to be getting the balance. And if you're not day after day, week after week, something's wrong. And right. so even in the midst of COVID, like put the work down, just put it down. You know, there's very little we do that's so vital that if I don't put it down for a little bit, the world will, will be destroyed, right? <laughs> you know, it's, it, yes. it, and so for me also, it's, it's not taking yourself more seriously than you should. It's not believing that the weight of salvation is on your shoulders. It's right. not thinking that you are the only one who can do this. It's right. really being honest about who you are. Sure. And, and I think that's critical because even as bishop, and I want to, I get lots of emails, I got lots of responses, I have lots of responsibility. But on the whole, you know, I go on vacation. Yeah. I take days off right. because I have to do that or I will be an ineffective bishop. There was a bishop before me, there will be a bishop after me. Right. I should not think it's about me. Yes. Right. It's the role, sure. And I bring my own stuff to it. But the role also requires rhythm and balance and taking rest. And That's, when we forget that, we forget it at our apparel. Yes. Right. And if you think it's all about you, then you've got to go back to it. This is pretty uh, hubristic, right? And maybe right. I need to, <laughs> need to reframe this a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, I, so I do think it's that recognition that sometimes, no, you have to plow through. Like, yeah. I mean, in the church, Holy Week. Right. Oh, holy week. Yeah, that's the initial times for COVID, right? You you have to plow through. You're going to put in long hours. You're going to be working intensely. Sure. And sometimes that just happens, but yeah. that should not be the everyday. Yes. Right. And when that happens and you plow through, then take a deeper rest. Right. 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 I, I, uh, I, I love the idea of this rhythm and this, this way of being. And I, then I just think St. Benedict did not have children. <laughs> <laughs> Right, <laughs> but that's okay. Of course, he didn't, and uh, and and we still have to find that rhythm, right? That still have to find the rhythm, and I love that idea of rest as a creative act. Yeah, and uh, yeah, uh, from the Book of Genesis, right? I guess that's um where you can start with that. That's great. That's beautiful. That's going to be a quote that's going to be get pulled out for sure, uh, and and then you probably don't run into this as much. I'm guessing, but. In, in the wider world, there are certainly organizations where there is a feeling that people need to increase their, uh, their capacity for grit and resilience. Uh, what's your perspective on that? Not necessarily whether or not it's true, but, 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 but how do you go about it? And maybe part of the question is, are you born with it? Or do you have it developed in childhood? Or can you develop it later? Um, what, how, how do you go about thinking about that or helping others develop that if they're working for you? I think developing self-awareness is a good first start. Yes. Right. And really coming to grips with your own story and how your story has shaped you, really coming into grips with where your story is inhibiting you or preventing you from living in your full potential. Yes. And asking, do you have the support system necessary for the times of grit? Right. Yes. Do yes. you have what you need to be resilient when things are happening? And if not, what would it take? Right. And being, being willing to be vulnerable, mm. right. To be able to say, I need help. Yeah. Right. Because once you can do that, once you can say to an issue, I don't know, I don't have the answer or I need help. Now you have the potential for growth. Yes. Right. And so I, I think part of that, yes, I believe actually you can learn it, but I think part of it is to be in a place where that encourages self-awareness, encourages self-growth, provides the structures and the, 
and the security to do that. Not in a, this is a safe place, but this is a brave space. Sure. This is a place where we can be brave about who we are and acknowledge um, that, no, maybe my life didn't prepare me for everything, but I want to be uh, with a group that are also struggling with their own selves. And, and I'm so for an, for an example, um, early on in the fire department, we could not acknowledge PTSD. Oh, right. Right. So we, we actually, my first department I ever served in, they actually had debriefing and intentional ways of saying, how did you experience this call? But we also had, if you need help, you're a candy ass. Mm, yes. Right? And so the message clearly given was you never admit something bothered you. Right. You never ask for help. The help you ask for is, you know, doing the work of the team, but not the emotional work with right. what you dealt with. Yeah. You know, you're just supposed to be strong. Right. That did not serve anybody well at all. Yes. Right. How do we say, no, actually acknowledging that we just face trauma is actually takes more strength than denying it. Yes. Right. Absolutely. So, so how do we do that? I think that's important Yeah. Um, because that provides then the necessary work internally to be resilient. When you're facing day after day after day, the, the trauma that you experience or the challenges that you're going through. Yes. Because you have a, you've built up the reserves and you have a place you can go to. Absolutely. But if you're not allowed to say it, if you're not allowed to acknowledge it, if you're not allowed to get help. Right. Then we're setting up a system that will eventually fail. People can go through for a period of time. Right. Eventually it will fail. Yes. Yes. I, you know, um, and that actually brings up a really good point because I think there's the individual, right? There's a, the individual right. responsibility and accountability that I think um, probably you and I both grew up with and and very right. much that was the idea in the army as well as it's up to you, you figure it out, you better not admit anything and you better charge on and get it done. Um, but now I think we're starting to, to do some really healthy work actually in part because of COVID and, and in part because management theory has been evolving this way from this like X theory to the Y theory to the Z theory, right? If you go back to the 50s and 60s and McGregor and, and, and part of that is creating the organizational structure such that people feel that they are safe to be vulnerable, to ask for the help that they need, to take the rest that they need, uh, and and yet still make the organization high-performing. And I, I hate that I just said, and yet, because that shows the, the, my, my implicit bias from, from coming from an older school uh, mentality. But, but having a very high-functioning organization, that permits people to be vulnerable, to ask for the help they need, and to be the person that they are, and not just have to be strong all the time. How do right. we create organizations that allow for that in the people within the organizations that actually make things happen. Yeah. So I actually believe the people at the top have to do it. Yes. Right. I mean, I know that there's a lot of the transformation from below, but the people at the top can stop it. Yes. And so the people at the top have to actually come to believe that healthy employees, healthy soldiers, healthy firefighters, healthy, whatever, right. Healthy priests, healthy congregants are more effective. Yes. Right. And, and effective doesn't necessarily mean always bottom line, but they are going to be better at doing the work you've called them to do in the first place. Right. And, and that that health matters and health is physical and emotional and spiritual, I would say. Yes. And so how do we provide for the health of our people? And right. part of that is to treat them right. Yeah. Right. To provide for ways of 
allowing for vulnerability and, and requesting help. Yes. So yes, so much, so much so. And you cannot say it enough, right? I think you have to say something. Right. I mean, marketers say seven times for somebody to hear you, but I think it's really closer to 14 anymore. <laughs> so right. and, and recognize that changing an organization takes time. Yes. It won't happen overnight. Yes. And organizations res, res, resist change, right? Yeah, so even if it's for the best, they resist change. Right, right, right. How much do you think that, um, and I think this is going a little bit into the idea of, uh, of a, a perspective on grit that I'm just starting to explore, grit and resilience, and actually your ability to show up at work um, as, a, as a creative act, actually, as the opportunity to bring autonomy and creativity into that work. How can you develop organizations that permit for that and yet have policies in place that are consistent and, and keep everything on the rails but permit for that, right? And in the military, I sort of think of this as like, which I don't think, by the way, is a place that necessarily does this well. But what but what does theoretically work in, in combat is that you have the commander's intent, right? You have an operations order with the commander's intent. The assumption is that once you make an enemy contact, the plan is going out the window right. and you ultimately need to meet the commander's intent. So creativity must exist within this un, unstructured space in order to still meet the commander's intent. But in an organization, the bigger that it gets, and the military is a great example of this too, you have to have that consistency of the policies and procedures in place. And yet this, uh, this idea of this Y management or the, the, the Z factor management is, is that we do our best work, we show up as our best selves uh, when we can have some autonomy and some creativity and how it is that we approach a job. How do you think about balancing that? Yeah, so, so I... I think to myself that the staff I have, I don't want to micromanage. Yeah. Right. And so to say, here's where we're going. Here's our end goal. Here's our vision for, mm. for what we're trying to do. And here's the more concrete immediate goals for the year. Right. How are you going to work to, to reach that? And then doing the check-ins and, and having the conversation about what are we doing? So that it's really clear what we're trying to accomplish. Sure. It's really clear where we're trying to go. Yes. But then saying you have space within your own field, your own place to bring your best self. Yes. Right. And, and if you don't, if you don't have, have the same vision for where we're trying to go or what we're trying to do, maybe this organization isn't the best organization for you. Sure. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so how do we provide for the flexibility of people working wherever they want to and yet coming together for certain times for, because the community does matter. Yes. And how do we say not everybody has works not everybody's a morning person. I'm not, right? That's and yet surprising, actually. Time together. So how do we, to really realize that, no, actually, we learned lessons from COVID that yeah. we should not forget. Right, um, right. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely fair. Uh, this is my last question, although we can take this in any direction you like, is um, one of the biggest challenges for anybody, for any of us, is facing the times that we fail and um, or or fall short and and owning that part of our story as well right and using that in a productive and in a way that can bring us forward uh, ideally stronger is there something that that you can recall in your own experience where um, you really came up against something that was and and I think the hardest things are our own failures myself but it could have been something else it could have been another challenge or obstacle where you you, you really got beat down and had to find your way back. Sure. Um, for me, the ones that immediately come to mind as soon as you ask are things where I feel like I fail in the hard relationship work. 
Yeah. Right. So part of the fire department in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, and we had changed the rules about staying active. And part of my job as president of fire board was to write letters to folks who had, who had not maintained their status and to say, you have three months to get your status back, you know, or you'll be dismissed from the department. And one of my really good friends was one of those people. And I just signed the letter and sent it to her as a, and, and she was highly hurt that I hadn't talked to her. And I realized, yeah, that was, that was actually a mistake. There was room for me to go and say, Hey, what's going on? You know, how, what, how can I help you with this? Um, and that, that relationship took a hit yeah. because I, I acted more like a boss than a friend. Right. Um, and there was room for me to be both. Sure. Right? That's the thing. Right. Um, and, and, and I knew I just signed it cause I didn't want to have the hard conversation yeah. and I should have had the hard conversation. Right. Yes. So that's one. So part of that always is it's for me when I'm, when I fail, I don't fail because I tried something and it didn't work. I fail because I didn't do something that I knew I should have done. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, if I try my hardest at something, right, or even not my hardest, but if I try something and it doesn't work, and that's a learning opportunity. Sure. Right. Sure. But if I'm if I'm afraid of the conversation, if I'm afraid and therefore don't do the the relationship building or I don't take a risk that I know I should take. Right. That's where I fail. And I think we need to get over the idea that failure means something didn't succeed. Right. Right. I I think that's when we say, no, we want those because we learn from those. How do we grow from those? Yes. We fail when, I mean, in the words of the church would say, we fail when we sin, when we break relationship. Right. And that's where the church, again, I think is helpful because we are called to confess that, to make amends for it and to amend our life by restoring it, you know? And so we have patterns in the church to formally do that, but those patterns are not meant to just be formal. They're meant to teach us, you know, how, when I break relationship, well, I confess it, right? Right. I confess my, what I've done and I acknowledge it. I make amends for it. I try to restore the relationship. Yes. Um, And so I think, I think the church can help us in terms of those failures. Um, How do you, how do you advise someone who might be working for, a boss who is, or, or even with a colleague that is, is somehow, um, abusive because there's the breaking relationship and there is, um, there are boundaries. And I feel like that's a really hard, fuzzy area sometimes. Yeah. So my own personal advice, if you have a boss or you're in a relationship that's abusive, name that and leave. Yes. Yes. Right. I mean, we are not called to stay in abusive relationships. Period. Yes. Yes. No, that's, that's, we we are, we are called to health and that is not healthy. Yes. It's an important, uh, important distinction for some people, I think, who are, um, who, who try maybe longer than they, they should at, at the expense of many things, but particularly themselves. Yeah. 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 That's fair. Um, but I love that idea of, of failure being not taking the risk, right? Failure is not doing, making the effort, uh, whether it's relationship or, or in something. And, and risk-taking can be hard when you're tired and when you're worn out and you haven't done that creative rest that we talked about earlier. So uh, I, I love that as, as a precursor and as a prerequisite for being able to take those risks that we're meant to take, right? Right, right. And those failures. 
Yeah, I mean, I, when I read the Gospels, what I see before Jesus did anything really important is he went away by himself. Yes, yes. Right? Got the rest, had the prayer time in order to then go do the hard work. Yes, yes. What would Jesus have done with two little boys, Bishop Gretchen? <laughs> say I envy him those times in the wilderness but there's some other times too that <laughs> no I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm so, so how do we help kids learn yeah um the, the the sort of rhythm and balance and I mean I, I think about my own self where we had chores every day yeah. we had to do before we could rest yes you know, but we also but I, I I was lucky I grew up on a farm so there's you'd also go play in the in the creek running through and run around and it was a different time. So we didn't worry about things like we do now. Right. Um, and our lives weren't over-programmed. Yes. Yes. But yeah. I, I do. I fear that the, our society is failing our parents, our young parents who yes. are caught in the tension of all of the expectations that right. you have for your own self, plus all of the expectations we now have for the kids. Yes. You know, and how do we, as, as the church, in my own case, how do we support young families right. and, and help you get the rest you need? Yeah. You know, and I'm not sure that we're asking the right questions in that regard. Right, so. right. I, it does seem like there are great opportunities and the church in particular is well suited to, to address them because it's one of the last intergenerational places of relationship, yeah. right? And, yeah. uh, and both understanding what our elders need and how to support them and love them and how to support families and children, uh, both and both and yeah. uh, separate entities yeah. and as together uh, is a place where the church is uniquely positioned to have an impact. And um, so. it really does feel like a lot of the, the challenges that we're facing as a broader culture. And I know that the, the, the church broadly, broadly defined and, and faith yeah. broadly defined has been used to political ends in really harmful ways. And that yes. pushes people away, but, but at its best and what it's meant to be. And, and what I, I'm grateful to you for and grateful to the Episcopal Church for is I think at its best, I think we it is a place where we can start to solve some of those relationship challenges. And I, I so appreciate you speaking to that, um, both in your own experience and and from the experience of the church. So so thank you for that. Well, one last thing is what would you recommend for somebody, whether they are starting out in academia or at the fire department or uh, or heading to seminary? What would you recommend for them as they look ahead to the challenges that they're going to face? Yeah. So, so remember um, who your friends are. Mm, yes. Right. And hold on to them. Yes. Right. And really do your own internal work. Have, have your, the person that you talk to, whether it's your spiritual director or your therapist, your best friend that you have a beer with and play pool with, whatever it is, right. Sure. Where are you going to get your emotional support? But yes. also recognize that it really is about living into your passion and your joy. Yeah. And sometimes I I am aware not everybody is fortunate enough to get paid to do what they love. Sure. Right. And if you can, if you can find a way to get paid to do what you love, you know, do that. And if you can't, right, find a way to find joy even in what you're doing for pay. Yes. Because you otherwise it's I think you're selling yourself too short. Yes. Right? But but how do you find your, how do you bring your entire self to whatever it is you're doing? Right? How do you nurture your entire self? How do you, and some of that is you really have to work on yourself. So do the hard work of working on yourself and keep your friends close. Those are very wise words from a wise, uh, wise lady. So thank you very much, Bishop Gretchen. My pleasure. Thank you. 
over to your favorite podcasting platform and hit subscribe. Then go over to YouTube and hit subscribe as well. We'll be posting the uncut interviews over at YouTube. And of course, follow along at Shannon H. Poulsen and at the Grit Institute on Instagram and at LinkedIn. I can't wait to see you for this season. You don't want to miss a single episode.